are listening to Cold Lake Community Church Podcast. I hope today's message inspires you. Cold Lake Community Church, a place where families come together. Uh, yeah, I want to talk to you this morning about how God develops and refines our lives through difficulties and failures. See, God views them very differently than we do. We view them as inconveniences. They're annoying. They're unfruitful. They're difficult. And God sees them as necessary, proven, life-giving opportunities. It was in Matthew 28, verse 17, uh, Jesus, as he's about to give the Great Commission, invites his disciples to come meet him at the mountain, perhaps the mountain that Christ originally called them to be his disciples, some scholars believe. And so at this mountain, where the disciples are coming full circle, that this is where they started their journey, and this is where the journey is ending for them with Christ as their leader walking on earth, as he is about to share with them the Great Commission. And the Bible says this, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some of them doubted. I, you know, I'm not Jesus, but if I was Jesus, or if you were Jesus, wouldn't you be just a little bit ticked off that all of your best friends in your hour of need, the guys who at the Last Supper said, Jesus, we will go to death, we doesn't matter, you know we've got your back, bro. Don't worry about it. They're not taking you. There's 12 of us. Well, soon to be 11. And they get to the mountain. And I can't help but think seeing Jesus there reminded them of their failure. I mean, I just, if I was Jesus, I would have been like, you guys? Like, how could I trust you with the most precious thing on the planet Earth, the mission of God. How can I trust you when you can't even live with integrity? You can't, you can't do anything. You guys are failures. I'm going to have to stay another three and a half years just to undo the mess you did in one week. I mean, I, hey, aren't you glad I'm not Jesus? Don't clap for that. Now, but that's not what Jesus did. And so some of them, you know, some of them saw Jesus and they bowed down to worship because they saw Jesus instead of their failure. But the second you start looking at your failure, start looking at your shortcomings, you're taking your eyes off of Christ and you start to begin to doubt. And that's exactly what the disciples did. But I love, I love what Jesus, this is my Jesus. When I think of what Jesus Christ means to me, this is the type of Jesus I want to serve. He's like, you guys screwed up. But forget about all that. Let's take over the world. Huh? Like, I, I, but Jesus, we're, we're absolute failures. We let you down. Yeah, 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 forget about all that. <laughs> I'm going to give you the greatest commission the world has ever seen. In the moment of your greatest failure, God sometimes calls you to moments of your greatest successes. Don't turn away from failures. Don't turn away from difficult times. So we pick it up in Luke 22. Before all of this happened, 
How many people have ever had an uncomfortable dinner moment? Be honest. Have you? Okay. I'll tell you, I'll, I'll tell you one of mine. Uh, we had friends over, and <clears throat> when my dad was in Bible college, we had friends come over. Great friends of ours. And uh, they just had one daughter. They had an older son, I think, or a daughter that had moved away. But just one daughter was left. And so my dad went to Bible college when he was 32, 33 years old. And I was in grade uh, 6, 7, and 8 when my dad went to Bible college. In fact, we were talking about that with Pastor Hayward uh, yesterday that my dad started just as you finished at Northridge Bible College. So we had friends over, and uh, their daughter uh, was just, just younger than me, and so she had leaned across the table to grab the salt. And, you know, you ever get the impression that there's more to the story? You know, it's like someone, so I'll tell you what happened, and then you'll understand what I mean. She reaches over the table to grab the salt, like literally reaches over the table to grab the salt. And her mom takes out her fork and stabs her right in the head. Like, it didn't stick, folks. I'm not, okay, like, don't, let's not, this isn't like a, but hard enough that she's like, ow! And it's like, ask for the salt to get past. Like, you had a feeling that there was something going on before they came over. You know what I mean? Like, people just don't jump to cutting and stabbing people with cutlery at a guest's house right off the bat. You know, there's like, hey, there's a bit of backstory here. But I'll tell you something right after that. If, this, if there was, like, the vegetables that were just next to you, you asked for them to get past. I'm not reaching. I am not reaching. And everyone at the table is just silent. You know when it gets silent that all you hear is the squeaking of cutlery? Imagine five minutes with eight, nine people around the table. Squeak, squeak, squeak. Slight chewing. Squeak, squeak. So uncomfortable, right? You've all had them. Someone asked, I went to a friend of mine. Uh, I just met them, but they later became friends and went to their house. And they put me at the end of the table as a guest of honor. It's like, well, okay, this is awkward because... I was, so I went to a conference with my friend, and my friend knew these people, and so I was just the tag along. But they put me at the end of the table, made this great steak, and at the end had crepes. And I said, oh, I've never had crepes before. Oh, we're going to give you the first one. I'm like, wow, how many people have ever had a dessert crepe, first of all? You know what I'm saying? Okay, so, yeah, so I've never had one before. So, I, 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 so they're giving me the first one, and I don't see, and they're like, go ahead and eat it by the time we you know, make the crepes fresh, we'll be chill, just start eating it. So I'm like, great, so what, what do you do? Well, you put this cream in, great, put fruit in, oh man, I cannot wait to get, you know, this into my mouth, this is going to be so amazing. And so everyone's like, go ahead, try it, okay. So I roll it up and eat it like a burrito. <laughs> Why are you laughing? <laughs> so I roll it up, eat it like a burrito, and their youngest son, who was in grade 11, goes, I've never already seen anyone eat a dessert crepe that way. And then I'm like, I'm like, how are you supposed to eat it? Like, oh, no, no, you can eat it that way. And then he, he realizes that he made me totally feel awkward. And I'm like, ah. Uh. He's like, no, that's a great idea. Now I'm going to eat it that way. I'm like, oh, this is the worst can I just go into the other room and watch TV? And that's exactly what I did. I just got up from the table, and they're like, why'd you go watch TV? So uncomfortable. 
And so Jesus now is at the Last Supper, and he's got some uncomfortable moments. There's heavy stuff being talked about here, and he covers a lot of things. He, first of all, sets, a, sets up a time for dinner. Then he speaks of his death, leads communion, talks of betrayal. The disciples argue who's going to be the greatest. Jesus talks of future glory and then talks about Satan. No biggie, right? Like just average, everyday, how did your day go? Good, I'm dying. But don't worry, I'll be raised from the dead three days later. Oh, and you're going to argue about how great you're going to be. But it's not going to mean anything because of my future glory. And so the disciples are very, very confused. And so right in Luke 22, verse 31 to 34, Jesus says these words, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail, and that once you have turned again, you would strengthen your brothers. But he said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go both to prison and to death. And he said, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will, cr will not crow today until you have denied me three times that you even know me. Earlier, Jesus reveals there's someone who's going to betray him in this room. And whenever you talk about, you guys, you know this. Whenever someone talks about being the worst, there's always talk about, well, then who's the best, right? If we're just saying, well, they're the worst, like, they are the worst team in the NHL, okay? But then it automatically brings into, well, then let's talk about, if we know who's the worst, then who's going to be the greatest? And these boys, remember, some of them being 16, 17, 19, 21-year-old men are now talking about who's going to be the greatest. I can't help but think that Peter was one of the louder ones, thinking that he was the best, perhaps the favorite of Jesus. I think him and John the Apostle had an issue. You know, as John always writes, when Peter, you know, this is John the Apostle writing about when they were running to the tomb, for example. It was always like Peter ran to the tomb with the one whom Jesus loved. Well, Jesus loved everyone, but he just really kind of, you know, kind of stick it to him. It's like he was talking about himself, folks. That's what he's talking about. The one whom Jesus loved. And then, then it says right after, and even though Peter started out ahead of him, the one whom Jesus loved made it there first. <laughs> so, you know, there, he, but I can't help but Peter thinking that he was the favorite, which is maybe why Jesus used his old name, Simon, saying it twice out of earnestness and affection for Peter, reminding him at this moment, you're acting like Simon, not like Peter. I've changed your name. I've changed your identity. Why are you acting like that? And saying it twice out of earnestness and affection, wanting him to be prepared for what's going to happen next, where his character is going to be revealed that is needing growth, and he cannot act this way. You see, Jesus knew in, in, in verse 34 that Peter had misplaced his confidence by placing it in himself, full of intentions, but now lacking in character. You see, all of you in this room are gifted. You possess talents and abilities, and sometimes it's easy to rely on your own strength, on your own uh, giftedness, but be careful not to place too much confidence in and of yourself. Rely on God and trust his leadings. And this uncomfortable dinner moment now turns Peter from the mouth of the group to now the ear. 
God has a great way of doing that. That God has a great way of people, the loudest ones, turning them from a mouth to an ear. And he said, Jesus said, Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. You see, God wants you here. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of darkness doesn't. Make no mistake, the enemy is not happy that you are here in this church, being part of this community, being light in a dark world. He wants to distract, delay, destroy God's plans for your life. And I know what you're thinking. Sift you like wheat doesn't sound like a very strong uh, statement. Not like in First in Peter it talks about Satan goes around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. You see, I, I used to play hockey and uh, sometimes uh, when I played hockey, I'd get competitive. Anyone here get competitive when they play sports? Thank you for your honesty. Let's bow our heads. God, I put, no. Uh, and so, you know, we get competitive, and sometimes my mouth would get ahead of my actions, right? And I'd start, I was one of the smaller guys, and so I'd start beaking a bit and trying to get under the skin of other people. And did you know in all of my years of playing hockey or sports, I never once ever said, if you don't stop talking, I'm going to sift you like wheat. <laughs> and in all of my years, no one has ever said that to me. No one's like, hey, Fraser, keep your mouth shut, or I'm going to sift you like wheat, boy. I mean, we are going to get it. We're going to, it's on like Donkey Kong, right? Because we don't think sifting like wheat is a really big, harsh statement, except when you understand if you're a piece of wheat, that's a pretty serious business because you're going to be shaken until there's separation. And that's what the enemy wants to do. He wants to shake your world so much that you actually become separated from God. The, the things in, the lot, in your life, the things that you, you thought were true and the, and the mindsets you had before and all of those things, you see the enemy wants to shake you until there's a separation. In fact, it's a very dangerous process for wheat. I wonder if the disciples were thinking back maybe to the first sifting time where there was a separation in John chapter 6. You see, it was about an year, a year earlier, Jesus is teaching in Capernaum, and he says some pretty strong statements, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood to remain in Christ, and other hard sayings. In verse 66, the Bible says that many of his followers, many turned away. And Jesus then, we were talking about this yesterday, Jesus then asked Peter, aren't you going? And, and Peter says, where else are we to go? Only you have the words of eternal life. You see, in this particular sifting, the disciples were the wheat and the crowds were the chaff. It was the sifting of numbers where he actually grew his church down to 12. But in Luke 22, we're talking about a much different sifting, a very different purpose and a very different goal. The second sifting that we're talking about in Luke 22 was going to be an internal one. It was the disciples inside of them would contain wheat and chaff. 
In John 6, they were sifted externally. But in Luke 22, it's a greater sifting because what's now going to happen is there's actually going to be a dividing within themselves. Separation of the wheat and the chaff. You see, John 6 is a great first step. Choosing to follow Christ. Coming to a church like this. Doing missions like Nish is doing. And following Christ wherever he leaves. But submitting yourself to a Luke 22 sifting is an important next step. Allowing Christ into your heart, into your thinking, into your pain, into your character development. Because the plans that God has to prosper you, to give you a hope, and a future requires internal Growth. Is anybody breathing out there? You see, God's trust level in you will increase as faithfulness, obedience, and character grows in you. And that comes through a Luke 22 sifting. Folks, you can always trust that God always knows what he's doing. He always knows what he's doing. There's nothing in your life where he went, oh, I did not see that coming. Oh, boy. Holy Spirit, did you see? I didn't. Jesus? No. How about any of the angels? Uh, we, don't, we don't talk very much. We just sing. How did that happen? How did that... Jesus... There's, there's nothing that is going to happen or has happened in your life that God is not aware of. And he's going to work everything for good. You have to believe that. Even in the tough times, the stretching times, the busy times, the painful times that we can count it all joy. It's producing something in your life. There's a purpose. God always knows what he's doing. And for me, and many of my friends, in this season of life, I know that God is doing a Luke 22 sifting. And I would dare say in your lives that God either is or wants to do a Luke 22 sifting where he begins to deal with the internal things in your heart. You see, God loves you so much, he won't let you stay the same. His plans for your life requires bigger character and requires an internal sifting. Peter had to go through it. I've had to go through it. Pastor Lance has had to go through it. Pastor Hayward has got to go through it. And you will too. I want you to notice another difference here in John, between John 6 sifting where the numbers shrunk down to 12 and Luke 22. In John 6... Jesus remained with them. The multitudes left, and Jesus remained with the disciples. But in Luke 22 sifting, Jesus was leaving, and the disciples were remaining. I mean, put yourself for a moment in the disciples' flip-flops. Not only losing Jesus as a friend, but they were also about to lose the Christ, the anointed one. The one in whom they have believed in. And now their faith is being shaken. Before they're standing beside, beside Jesus facing the world. Now it's the 12, soon to be 11, standing next to each other facing the world. No wonder Jesus, no wonder Peter took Jesus aside and rebuked him 
when he kept talking about dying. <laughs> Jesus, you got to stop talking about dying, man. It's kind of dragging down the group. Like the morale isn't as high as we think it should be. When you say, well, guys, I'm going to die. Don't talk about that. No, but I am. Shh. Rubbing his back. Shh. No, you're not. Shh. And Jesus rebukes him. Says, Satan, get behind me. I mean, don't ever call your friend Satan unless you're Jesus Christ, okay? Like, like, that, is, like that is a revert. Like, that, that is a burn that only Jesus can do, okay? Like, do not call you. You are the devil. Don't do that, okay? But he says, you are thinking like the world, not understanding this. You see, Peter could have never perceived that a more powerful day was re- that was coming, but it required Jesus's life. Peter never could have thought that Jesus was doing this to actually be even closer to Peter. Not understanding that Christ inside of him is more powerful than Christ beside him. And Jesus understanding the pain and confusion going, I have to do this because I want to be even closer to you, Peter. He wants, you see, Christ in you is better than Christ beside you. I want you to think about that thought for a moment, that Christ in you is better than Christ beside you. And I love Jesus' response after all of this. Yes, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat, but Jesus says, but I have prayed for you. Not, I will pray for you, or I'll put it through the prayer chain. No, immediately, Jesus has already prayed. Satan wants to sift you like wheat. My response and your response to prayer may be different than what Jesus's was. The Bible in Hebrews 7 tells me he's our high priest making intercession for us. You know, it's interesting as you read just on a little bit, it's intriguing to me what Jesus didn't pray. You see, my first prayer would have come against Satan. You know, you will not in Jesus' name, in my name, you know. That's not what he prayed. He doesn't pray that the disciples would be exempt from Satan's sifting. You see, God allows situations into your life to separate the chaff from the wheat. It's a good thing. Or they would never fall or make mistakes. No, he prayed this, that their faith would not fail. I mean, that could get you doing cartwheels up and down the aisle today. That Jesus Christ is praying that your faith won't fail. Yeah, you're going to go through difficult times. Yeah, you're going to go through the sifting times. And yeah, it's going to hurt and the internal stuff that you've got to work through, your past and uh, some of the things in your present, maybe some of the things that are affecting your future. And yes, you've got to deal with some of the healing. But guess what? In it all, your faith won't fail because Jesus Christ is praying for you. You see, both Jesus and Satan know what remains. Faith, hope, and love. They're not going out of style. They'll always be around. And these are the three things that are built to last. And both want to go after the same things in your life. Faith, hope, and love. I'm telling you, Satan is out there to steal away people's faith. He's out there to steal away hope in this world. And he's out there to steal away love. Because those are the three things that remain. But Jesus prays, doesn't matter how many mistakes you make, how big they are, your faith will never fail. 
because Jesus is praying for you. So how will Satan sift you? How he, will he try to cause your faith to fail? Well, let's fast forward the story. You know it. Where Peter denies Jesus three times. Why? Because of fear. I heard uh, my friend Landon uh, once say, say, fear is the faith of the devil. How God works through faith, the enemy works through fear. Satan wants to grow fear in your life because if fear increases, faith decreases. Does that make sense? So fear increases, it automatically shrinks your faith. But if your faith increases, what happens to fear? It shrinks. It's about, it's about increasing your faith. Weakness in character is more easily influenced by fear. In Luke 17, the disciples come up to Jesus and they say, Jesus, we want to have the same faith you did. Because there were three different times that he stopped just dead in his tracks. The Roman centurion, the woman with the issue of blood, and the Syrophoenician woman. Where Jesus was a guy on a mission but stopped three times in his tracks. And faith, acts of faith got his attention. And he stopped and he said, you know, and he had the conversation. You can read the story about it. So it doesn't, it doesn't surprise me the disciples go, Jesus, how do we increase our faith so we can be like that and get your attention? And I think that it's not the quantity of faith, but the quality of faith. Because I think pure faith is the absence, total absence of fear. That means if there is no fear, just a little bit of faith wins no contest. And Jesus wants Wanted his disciples then and wants his disciples now to live by faith and not by safe. Not with fear. The kingdom of God is fearless. In Revelation, they say they overcame him, the enemy, by the blood of the lamb, the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives even unto death. They were fearless Christians. The enemy brings fear, but Christ brings fear faith. There's lots of fear you can have. Fear of change, fear of workload, fear of finances, future, fear of man, fear of rejection. I don't know if those will ever go away, but as you build your faith, they will never overtake you. Your faith won't fail because Jesus is praying you, praying for you. You may fail, your pastors may fail, your teachers may fail, your friends may fail, your family may fail, but God always knows what he's doing and he never fails. He never fails and neither will your faith. I want you to be so encouraged today that he knows what you can handle. He knows you're going to make it. He knows you're going to excel and he's committed to your success. In John 6, the disciples are on the boat just before Jesus had did the first sifting. They're on the boat, and um, they're fearful. They think they're going to die. And Jesus comes striding onto the water to rescue them. And immediately, Jesus looks at them, and, and he, once he comes onto the boat, you know the story. The storm stops and everything like that. And he asks them, why do you have such little faith? Why do you have such little? In fact, that was the only thing really Jesus ever got after his disciples about. 
is why do you have so little faith? Why do you have so much fear? It's a really, really critical idea that we do not walk around as fearful Christians, that we tuck in our shirt, we stand up a little straighter, we look people and situations in the eye knowing that our faith isn't going to fail and God is going to be there with us and he's going to get us through it. You see, Jesus walks on top of the things that are trying to sink us. He walks on top of it, and he reaches down, he pulls us up, he goes, why are you walking down there when I've already given you the victory? And I was, I was telling the board, and, and uh, is, Olivia, is Olivia that plays keys? There she is. Can you just come up and play? Uh, just, just in closing, it was uh, great. It was uh, the summer of 89. Near, 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 near. Sorry, anyways. And... Uh, I got to camp, and I was telling the, the board the story that this uh, yesterday. That was the first time I ever received a prophetic word from someone. They wrote out a card, and uh, they wrote out a card, and it was Joshua 1, chapter 6 to 9. And essentially, I don't have time to explain the whole thing, but essentially it's this. Be strong and courageous. Joshua, it's now your turn to be strong and courageous. He says it three or four times, I can't remember. It says, be strong and courageous. And as we were talking about yesterday, uh, as a board, I, we all know people. We all know people who are strong people. But how many of them are courageous? I mean, I know strong Christians. I mean, we could probably line them right across the altar. Strong Christians. I read my Bible, pray every day to keep the devil away. I, I got a good prayer life, I tithe, I'm generous, and all of those wonderful things that I think you actually need to be strong. I'm not saying you don't need to be strong. I'm like, oh good, I don't have to do those things anymore. I'm just going to be crazy and jump off cliffs, right? No, no, I'm not telling you to do that. I think you need to develop strength, and strength comes through going through these sifting times. Your character gets built, and God begins like, man, I can trust you and stuff. But, you, but then there's these moments that he puts in front of you where you get to be courageous, you get to step beyond yourself. You get to put yourself to the side. And you go, I'm going to be courageous for somebody else. I, I'm, I'm going to put my selfish desires aside. And I'm going to be selfless in this moment. And I'm going to be courageous for somebody else. I believe that you're in a season as a church where you've been a strong church. Where you've developed a lot of strength and there's a lot of structure and there's a lot of great things moving forward. But as we talked about a board yesterday, my challenge in prayer has been this weekend that you wouldn't just be strong, but you'd be courageous because there's a land that God has yet to show you that you are to take. But it, you must get past fear. You must get past fear. You must embrace the internal sifting in your lives that God brings you through. Not rejecting, not complaining, but embracing. Seeing the greatness that's going to come out of it. Believing that there will be. That God is who he says he is. And he says that, every, that he's going to take all things and work them for your good. And of course for his good as well. My challenge for you today is to not be satisfied with just being strong. Not be satisfied with just kind of like, you know, I'm a strong Christian and people know who I am at work and 
I mean, they, they don't ask me to swear, and you know, they don't ask me to do things with them, and so they know where I stand. But what would a courageous Christian look like in that context? What would a courageous Christian look like in your everyday context? Maybe a courageous Christian looks like a dad praying over his kids. Oh, they know I pray for them. Yeah, but have you ever prayed over them? Have you ever blessed them? A mom blessing her kids. Praying for someone in a grocery store that looks like they're hurting. Allowing a spiritual gift to actually be more functional in a marketplace than a church. I don't know, you fill in the blanks for you. What does courageousness look like? You see, because after you go through all of these difficult times, it says right at the end, Peter, you're going to go through all of these difficult times. Why? Because you're supposed to turn, you're supposed to learn from it, and then you're supposed to go strengthen somebody else. You see, nothing will pull you out of self-pity faster than you go ministering and helping and realize, oh, God did this in me so that I could help somebody else. Doesn't that sound like you're Jesus? Doesn't it sound like you're Jesus? I'm going to walk with you in the mess I'm going to help you get through it. I'm going to give you the power. I'm going to give you the strength. I'm going to do everything. And when you're through it, you're going to get the reward of strengthening somebody else. When we go through the difficult times, we have an opportunity to be courageous. There's a reason that we get to go and strengthen somebody else. So God, I pray right now. I know your spirit's here. There's a calling forth that's happening even more than my words are, are being heard today. God, I pray there would be an unction. We don't use that word very often anymore. But a prompting, an unction of the Holy Spirit that would pull us out of our comfort. Pull us out of what's comfortable. Maybe fear is just standing in front of us and we're looking at it as an obstacle, but rather we should look at it as an opportunity to be courageous. Change our perspective today, God. There's a hurting world out there on the other side of our fear. And we need to get to them. We need your strength, God. We need character development. And we need faith to arise in this place. So I pray, God, as a blessing for this church, that faith would arise. God, I pray for every single child, every mom, every dad, every brother, every sister, every grandpa, every grandma that is here today. I pray, God, that faith would begin to arise, that we would walk out of this place stronger in our faith because we understand that it's not going to fail and that we can move forward because you're leading and you're guiding us. We rely on your strength now. Help us to get past fear because there is a hurting world on the other side of our fear. There is. There's a hurting world on the other side of your insecurity. Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We hope you've been blessed by this teaching from Coley Community Church. Thank you for your continued support of this ministry. Holy Community Church, 
a place where families come together.